Hi, and welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Peter Schechter. And every other Friday, we get together to navigate the high seas of global politics. And I'm Mooney Jensen. So glad that spring is in the air, at least in D.C. It seems like the past few weeks, we've seen some glimmers of optimism with COVID cases dropping, a new batch of vaccines, a welcome re-engagement by the U.S. and the rest of the world, and some other flickers of light for the global economy. But, Peter, there's thunderclouds in the geopolitical horizon, and today we will look at the rising concerns about Russia with increasingly repressive actions and a continued destabilizing effect on geopolitics. We'll be joined in a few minutes by Jill Duggerty, former CNN journalist and Russia expert at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars. Mooney, I love all your weather metaphors. Spring is in the air, thunderclouds in the horizon. <laughs> you know, the world has been riveted recently by the poisoning of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Navalny survived on the attempt on his life, and he also exposed the plot to book toxic Novichik, this World War II category poison in his underwear. And after creating a website showing the opulence of the Putin family, he gets on a plane and returns to Russia, immediately gets arrested. He unleashed this massive protest around the country. And, you know, the question that all of us have to ask ourselves, is any of this going to make a difference? I remember in 2005 when Mikhail Khodorovsky, the business mogul turned opposition leader, he was also arrested. He was also sent to prison and it was also sensational at the time. But the world just forgot about it soon after. You know, Peter, to me, the most interesting and actually the more concerning thing about Russia is that its influence is it's not necessarily proportional to its weight. Russia is still undeniably a global powerhouse, but one born more out of subversive actions and really clever maneuvering more than, you know, out of the economic might or military heft that makes superpowers. And there's a really famous quote by Winston Churchill that has never been more true. And the quote is, Russia is never as strong nor as weak as she looks. And the truth is that the Kremlin always seems to compensate for its weak economic performance through a mix of domestic oppression, questionable data reporting, and frank bullying in its neighborhood. Putin's Russia has obviously outsized strategic influence on the world stage, and it uses its traditional rivalry with the U.S. as a hook to piggyback with China on a robust agenda that includes not only military ties, but conquering the Arctic and now announcing joint lunar space exploration. And on the health front, it's emerged as a true vaccine diplomat, supplying most of Latin America, including my mother, with the Sputnik vaccine and partnering with countries like Finland and Italy to manufacture more doses. So that also is a clever way to stay on the headlines. And Mooney, Putin's flirtations with Europe pose these incredible challenges for leaders like Angela Merkel as they try to strike a balance between maintaining U.S. relations and also maintaining their own economic gain. And the best example is the EU's dilemma with this ambitious Nord Stream gas pipeline project that would supply energy to Eastern Europe where Moscow's strategic gains are just absolutely undeniable. On cyber terrorism, Putin's technology agenda includes a massive hacking, theft of straight secrets by accessing civilian government networks and exposing vulnerabilities of democracies around the world, including the U.S. election tampering around and which created so many headlines of this omnipresent country with stakes in politics and every corner of the world. 
And they do tamper with elections everywhere. And at the center of all this is Vladimir Putin, of course, the strategist himself, who has grown increasingly repressive while retaining this country's superpower status, based mostly on optics, on visible, impactful, provocative shows of force. 22 years in office, he's facing a new U.S. government, his fifth presidential counterpart. It's, it's amazing. He's already forced... It really is. It's just incredible. This fifth president. He's not even that old. And he's already forced Joe Biden on the defensive in his first hundred days, responding to cyber attacks, vaccine distribution abroad and the poisoning of Navalny. And it may be well that internal protests more than Cold Wars will be the ultimate undoing of this historical superpower. He's held up through a mix of everything. Tactical shows of force, adversarial relationships with the U.S., sanctions and iron-fisted repression and self-interested alliances. He's very clever and is holding on. But before we welcome our guest, we're going to welcome Thea for Thea's take on Russia with a view from the streets. Hi, I'm Tay Ivanovich. You know, Peter, it's it's funny. I studied European and Eurasian studies at my graduate school, Science Johns Hopkins, and one of my favorite classes was this course on Central Europe and Russia. And there were two constant takeaways that were drilled into us every time. And first was the lack of economic diversification and how that will eventually come to bite Russia in the you know what. And then secondly was this political strength of Putin. And today the lack of economic diversification is the same, but what has shifted is Putin's support, especially among younger Russians. And I think this is really the key issue here. And the Russian state is, is falling apart from within. Just four to five years ago, young Russians were very supportive of the Putin regime. Polls showed about 60% of younger Russians to be in favor of the president. But if you look at the statistics today, that's been cut in half. And I think this is really the big story here. A lot of it can be ascribed to the internet and social media, of course. Uh, younger Russians now see what's out there. And I don't think that means that Russia's youth will, will just embrace Western democracy, but I do think that it means that they're largely immune to the Kremlin's propaganda that flows from national TV networks. And it also means that they mobilize much more easily than they ever did before. So now when you look at protests, you'll see that polls showing a lot of young people out on the streets. And these young people are the future leaders. They are the new voters. So I do think that's really important here. And lastly is really the Kremlin is simply has no youth outreach policy. I mean, in, in fact, it's the opposite. Just with, like with Pussy Riot, bands and musicians that don't tow the party line find themselves targeted by government bans. And this just widens the gap between Kremlin and the youth. So right now, there's no space for political dissent. And my question is, can a real opposition movement come to life in Russia? So I want to leave you all with that question. And I want to ask you what you think. Tweet at us at Altamar Podcast and let us know what you think about Russia's youth. Taya, thanks for that insight. From your lips to God's ears that young people will modernize and change Russia. Now let's welcome Jill Doherty, a top expert on Russia and the former Soviet Union. Jill was an international correspondent for three decades at CNN, Moscow bureau chief, White House correspondent, and Really, she's written and reported extensively on Russian media, politics, and foreign affairs. Jill, thank you so much for being here on Altamar with us. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. Thank you very much, Peter and Mooney. So, Jill, let's start with some of the 
top news of the day, and that's obviously Navalny and the protests. The world has been riveted by this attempted poisoning and the subsequent protests. Does any of this make a difference? You know, I think um, if you're saying, does it make a difference to Vladimir Putin? (laughs) Ostensibly, it makes no difference because President Putin doesn't use his name, uh, refers to him, if he ever refers to him as the patient, because remember, he was in that German hospital. But essentially, you know, Putin dismisses him, denigrates him, and gives the impression that he has no influence on the country whatsoever. But if you look at the way the Kremlin is dealing and the Russian legal system is dealing with Navalny, you'd have to say that they consider him quite a threat. I mean, just now, very interesting. I was watching or listening to some things about Navalny, and there was an Instagram, a report about his use of Instagram. He is in a colony, a work colony, and yet he is somehow able on Instagram to say, hey, yes, here I am in this colony, and describes getting his hair cut, you know, shaved head, etc. So his ability to communicate, I think, is one of the key issues that threaten the Kremlin, because Navalny, whether you love him or hate him, regardless of what your views, and we can talk about that, but he is very good at communicating in the modern ways of communication that get out, especially to young people. And the Kremlin so far just hasn't been able to develop a type, a way of talking to the younger generation that seems to, you know, communicate or work. Well, that, that's so interesting because our colleague Taya has just talked a little bit about how she believes that Russia's weakest link is coming from within and in particular from young people who are exhausted and, you know, feel that dissent is their only, is there, is, is the only way to go. And so take us to a sense of what is, what is happening in Russia and, and where is it going in particular? We're talking about a new generation coming up. How is this generation going to try to shape things? You know, the new generation, I actually teach a course on that at Georgetown And there is no textbook because nobody really knows precisely how to define what that group is. But you'd have to say that I firmly believe, and based on research that's being done by Russian experts, especially sociologists, you'd have to say that there is a generation, and I call it the Putin generation. It's actually maybe more correct to say the internet generation. These are young people who have grown up, let's say over the past 20 years, they are totally online. They are not watching the national media. Many of them don't even have TVs physically. They don't watch TV. So they're not exposed to the propaganda that the Kremlin is providing on the state media. And they're different in many ways. I mean, the studies, if I could kind of you know, condense them in a couple of sentences, they're, they're communicating exclusively online, which means that they are part of the world conversation. This is not just Russia, although the, you know, the issue of language comes up, so they are kind of tied to Russian language. But many of them, or I would say a significant number, speak English or other languages. So they are exposed to the same music, the same cultural influences, and and really important, the same jokes and this kind of snarky 
sense of humor. They're on TikTok. Uh, they are on Instagram. They are, to a certain extent, some are on Facebook, but they have their own version of Facebook, which is Contactia, in contact. So they're out there. And they are more exposed and open to the world. They tend to be more open on social issues like LGBT issues. Uh, they are, I was looking at some statistics, you know, Navalny had a video, which maybe you have seen, that was called Putin's Palace. Okay, that got, so far, 113 million hits, which is really astounding. And I was looking at some numbers. If you look at young Russians, do they believe that? Do they believe that Putin really has this giant kind of castle, uh, you know, a mansion that's called Putin's Palace? 81%, according to a poll by the Levada Center, they say that it seems to be true. Whereas if you look at people over 55, according to the study, only 39% then believe that it could be true. So you've got a big generation gap. I, I would add one thing, however, it's a big however. There aren't very many young people in Russia. Population tends to be older. And there could be a bit of kind of skewed toward big cities, Moscow, St. Petersburg, as opposed to the hinterland and smaller towns. But, but they are, they're different. Jill, despite all this, Russia continues to make like world superpower headlines on all fronts from vaccinations to cross-continental projects, cyber warfare. It's now announced an alliance with China for space travel. And then despite this weakened economy, despite the people on the street, despite its tremendous dependence on oil and gas, it still continues to retain its power. And, and we started the podcast with, a, with the Churchill quote about Russia not being as weak or as strong as it looks. What is your take on its status? I would say that it actually is weaker in many ways than we think it is. Russia has, and so many people say this, President Putin plays a weak hand quite well. But I would also say that, you know, Russia, historically, even going back to the Soviet days, if it really wanted to accomplish something, let's say the space program, you know, putting a man in space, Yuri Gagarin, Sputnik, to, you know, which is the name is back in the news again, when they wanted to do something spectacular, they had these projects that if they had the technological capability and they have very good scientists and they devoted enough money and importantly, the leader of the time devoted his attention to that project, they could do amazing things. So, you know, you have to say, okay, Sputnik, Sputnik in 1957, you had the first satellite that went around the earth and that was an, an amazing accomplishment. Right now, you have Sputnik V vaccine. How did they do that? Well, it's obvious that when the Russian government decides that they are going to do something, they can pour a whole lot of money at that. But that doesn't mean that the overall economy is really, really strong. Now, if you look at recent a couple of years, you have an influence of sanctions on Russia. You have 
the price of oil, which fell, now it's coming back up again. But if you look statistically, the GDP fell last year, and this is kind of what you're saying, Mooney, 3.6% last year. That is not actually that bad because they have some very good people in the economic side of the government who are making sure that they're you know, doing what they can to survive low oil, et cetera. But I guess what I'm saying is it's very uneven. And in the long run, you look at people, there are far more people living in poverty now than just a few years ago. Food prices are going up. So I do not think that they are as powerful as they were, Or, but again, in certain areas, they can be very influential and they can use kind of a negative power. We could talk about that later, kind of, you know, putting um, a, a stick in the spokes of the wheels, you know, of what the United States wants to do. So two questions. Is the data coming out of Russia faulty? And exactly how powerful is the Russian military? No, I don't think that the data necessarily are incorrect. I mean, you know, if you look at like the Sputnik vaccine, there you know, it's been up and down. But essentially, I mean, some of the data is correct, but it, it doesn't it doesn't really um, give the entire picture. Like the Russian military, if you go back to the war with Georgia, which I think was really a wake-up call for Putin, he realized that the Russian military was in bad shape. And so President Putin made it very early, made it his job to improve the military. They poured a lot of money into it. They had better trained military. They had some volunteers, and it was no longer just kind of this bedraggled 20-year-olds who were dragooned into serving in the military. It's actually quite a good army. And you look at Syria, what they did in Syria, it's proof that they actually have kind of come back. So I don't think it's a lie, but I don't think we can necessarily impute from that that the country is strong. You can put a lot of money into the military, but what about, again, the people? What about the you know, real incomes declining? You know, real incomes for Russians have declined every year for the past eight years. And that is significant. Let me uh, go back to your uh, s- stick in the bicycle spoke, your negative power, and in particular, how this affects the new president of the United States, Joe Biden. I mean, Already, we've seen how Biden is facing criticism from the right for not being strong enough to halt the Nord Stream pipeline, which was practically already built before he he took office. So how does Russia use that negative power and how does a new U.S. president counter that? Ooh, that's really going to be uh, <laughs> the challenge for Joe Biden, isn't it? Because you have um, the previous president, President Trump, of course, had what I would describe as kind of a schizophrenic approach to Russia. On the one hand, he said, wouldn't it be nice if we could have a good relationship with Vladimir Putin? It was very personal. And it was very, when he said that, he never explained how. How do you do that? It was just kind of pie in the sky. Well, wouldn't it be nice if we had a better relationship? Meanwhile, the rest of his government and certainly Congress, were uh, instituting more and more sanctions against Russia and took 
a much harder line than President Trump ever did. And now you have Biden coming in. I think the first thing that he is doing is he is trying, Biden is trying to strengthen relations with Europe. Because if you look at what Trump did, Trump dissed our best friends in Europe, criticized NATO, and this was all, you know, happy news to President Putin. Because one of the things that he definitely wants to do, and speaking about spokes and the wheels, is to diminish that relationship, damage that relationship, and greet any type of division between Europe and the United States or Europe and the uh, United States and NATO and try to exacerbate that and exploit it. So that's what I mean, that divisions between NATO and the United States or Europe, uh, d- racial divisions in the United States, which exist, but in almost an old Soviet way, Russia and President Putin try to exploit that. They don't have, I would say, any feasible message for the world on how everyone can get together and solve these issues. That's not what they're trying to do. They are not prescriptive. What they're trying to do is find the chink in the armor and make it bigger. And that's, that is their modus operandi. And I think it's, you know, as a person who is I've tried to be as open and welcoming. Uh, I'm kind of a Russophile. I guess I'd, I shouldn't even say that because that would get me into a lot of trouble. But I studied there as an exchange student. You know, I, I, you know, I have a pretty good relationship. But it bothers me when I see Russia, instead of saying, here, this is how we can help and this is how we can contribute to international issues, many times what they do is say, Okay, it's a, a zero-sum game. They're going to win if we lose. Ergo, let's try to weaken them. And that's what they do. So let's take our American hat off and put our European hat on. And you know, we one of the things that we've seen as a result of Trump's, how did you say, dissing of Europe was we, we saw the beginnings of a new European foreign policy. And how is Europe going to handle Russia, which is not a new problem for Europe, in particular without somebody like Merkel being around? Well, uh, that's, I think, a very important point, because Merkel really was the Western leader during Donald Trump's time in, in the presidency, because Donald Trump pulled back and wanted to get out of Europe. And as we said, as I said, kind of damaged the relationship with NATO and Europe. So now, without Merkel, Europe is going to have to figure out how to deal with Russia. And unfortunately, it sometimes reverts to individual countries dealing with Europe instead of as a unified group of countries. And that's where Russia can exploit differences between France and Germany or or other countries. And don't forget, you know, we have Brexit, which has certainly weakened the UK in Europe. And uh, we have the other issues of uh, migration, you know, illegal, what we would call illegal migration, but desperate people coming from North Africa. So in all of Europe has problems right now. And Europe has divisions, even in what kind of vaccine it's going to use for COVID. So Russia can, again, using that word exploit, can exploit those divisions and those weaknesses. 
and um, to to their benefit. Jill, what do you make of Russia's relationship with China? It seems a little bit schizophrenic. They announce a lunar space travel alliance. They've been working together on conquering the Arctic. They have tremendous division as well. Uh, it's politically profitable, probably, for both of them to uh, join forces when necessary. But what is behind all this and how can it destabilize the West? That's a very broad question. And a lot of people are looking at that. I think that could be a, a big issue, obviously, for for Biden. But looking at the relationship between Russia and China without the United States at this point, you know, just go back to the 1950s, they they were enemies. They were shooting at each other. They had border disputes. So what they have right now, they, they call it a strategic alliance. And I don't see that as a very defined explanation of what kind of relationship they have. It has aspects of economics and it has aspects that are military. It appears to me, and I'm not an expert on China, but it appears to me that that the military side of it is what they're looking at more strongly at this point. They had joint military exercises. But I think of them as kind of, at this point, two people who've come together and kind of tacitly agree to ignore the problem of the other. Like, because there's another force out there, which is the United States, whom they want to, let's say, challenge, challenge America's primacy. So how do you do that? You join hands, but China knows that Russia at this point is never going to be an economic competitor for China. There is absolutely no way. However, Russia has sophisticated weapons and does a pretty good job, I think, using some political influence in other countries. So they've joined forces. I, I do not diminish it. And I, I certainly don't overvalue what it is, but it's, a, it's an important relationship. That said, I think that there is no question that Biden is going to be more focused on China because that is the major force. Russia is going to be there. And the difficulty, I think, in dealing with Russia will be communicating with them because a lot of communication has stopped. There is very little government-to-government communication anymore. A lot of that was ended after the invasion of Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea. So you need communication, but you have to go at it in a very careful way. So for the future, Muni, you know, on China and that relationship, I'm my focus is on China in the, you know in the future there's no question Jill in the minute that we have left let me just ask you about your outlook for a post Putin Russia I, I don't know if there'll ever be a, a post Putin Russia but presuming that one day we'll have it what how do you see it okay in one minute or less I would say that President Putin knows that to be a modern country, he has to do certain things that are going to potentially be dangerous for him. He has to have an open internet. He has to have a strong economy. He has to allow people, especially young people, to have their creative or even business outlets. They have to be full citizens. 
But by doing that, an open internet could be a threat to him. That's why he's trying to control it. Communication with young people is not going well. Young people are the key to success for Russia. So the things that he needs for a modern country are could be dangerous to his own continuation in power. Jill Doherty, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar and the fascinating discussion. Happy to be here. So, Peter, that's a lot of pressure on the young Russians. They're responsible for kind of destroying this incredibly crafty and strategic regime just with their social media and their protests. Uh, obviously, the numbers are pointing to a lot of discontent in that generation. But it, are they organized and strong enough to really kind of overthrow or at least weaken Putin? That's the question I'm left with. And it's the right it's the right question, Mooney. I, I got to tell you, I have my doubts. I mean... It will take more time. I mean, it took forever f to overthrow the czars. It took uh, another six plus decades to overthrow the communist regime. And it will take more time, more dissent. And I think the most important thing that Jill taught us today was how quickly Russian economic livelihood is descending and getting worse and worse. So to me, that's an enormous sign of impending destabilization. But, you know, the Russian population has always shown throughout history that it can take a lot. It must be the spring air, Peter, but I fully agree with you. So we will leave it at that before any dissent comes between us. And we will see you next time, listeners. Thank you. And you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. See you next time.